Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. There are a lot of different opinions and thoughts on how to appropriately diagnose and treat dermatophytosis in dogs and cats. Um, And inspired by a local journal club we did uh, with some dermatologists in our Portland, Oregon area, I wanted to take the opportunity just to present a summary of actually a consensus statement that was put out in 2017. And this is a paper that you can find um, open to evaluate and read yourself. And this was under diagnosis and treatment of dermatophytosis in dogs and cats, clinical consensus guidelines of the World Association for Veterinary Dermatology. So I think it's really nice to have this group that went over exhaustive look at the literature from 1900 to when this was published, um, just to kind of see what does all the papers, what does all the literature show us. So I just wanted to go over a summary of this as an easy way um, that you can learn. So when they talk about prevalence and risk factors, um, it was mentioned that the determination of true prevalence and breed predispositions is really difficult because it's not a spontaneously occurring disease. It's not something that has to be reported. It's not a fatal disease. So the infection really can vary um, for dermatophytosis based on severity. It can be really mild, focal lesions, you can have asymptomatic pets, you can have completely affected pets throughout their entire body. Um, They can range from resolving without any treatment to um, needing lots of different treatments and long courses of antifungals to truly improve. Um, We do see that subcutaneous dermatophyte infections, which can be um, kind of more draining, more complicated lesions, tend to happen more commonly in Persian cats and in Yorkshire Terrier dogs. Um, And we see that working in hunting dogs might have some increased risk of exposure to spores and get more superficial lesions because they're out there potentially getting it in the soil or getting it from rodent holes. Um, And so going into diagnostic testing for dermatophyte, we all want that perfect test that always gives us the perfect answer. And I think of trying to diagnose dermatophyte almost like trying to diagnose Cushing's disease. There's a lot of tests and that's potentially because there's not one perfect one. And sometimes you have to repeat tests, sometimes you have to run multiple tests to finally get your answer. And that's what this consensus guide showed as well, that there's really not a gold standard. Uh, Dermatophytosis, it's diagnosed by using a number of different diagnostic tests, anywhere from Wood's lamp, um, direct examination of the hair by plucking it and looking under the microscope just to look for active hair infection, dermatophyte culture, um, you know, looking at biopsy in some of these more nodular cases may be necessary too. There's also something called dermoscopy, which has been evaluated in human and veterinary medicine, where it is a different type of tool that I can actually look at the hair itself, and it can be a useful clinical to- tool that you can use with or without a woods lamp, just to maybe pick out the different hairs that you would use for your culture or to directly look under the microscope. I know there's a lot of questions about PCR and how much popularity PCR has gained, and this 
guideline goes over that. PCR detection of dermatophyte DNA can be helpful, but what we need to remember is a positive PCR does not necessarily indicate active infection. In fact, if you are treating a case, there can be dead fungal organisms that have been treated successfully, but they'll still show up on PCR. So where I use PCR is I use it sometimes in combination with my DTM if I submit it to a lab. If I'm really suspicious that there could be active infection, if there's a positive, great, I know within a couple days, but I have had some where the PCR does not come back positive and will still grow it on culture. I So I like to run both. If I am going to even run it, I still rely on DTM culture a bit more. I do not use PCR to make decisions on whether or not I have a negative. Like I've treated for a month, I'm going to base whether I have my first negative on that culture, not PCR. Now, if your PCR comes back totally negative, you'll know that you have a cured animal based on this consensus guideline, but it's not a good test to utilize um, when you're trying to make the decision. You want to use that DTM culture because just because the PCR is positive doesn't mean that that animal is still truly infected. It could be dead organisms on that animal. Interestingly, this guideline also brought up, contrary to what is believed, Woods Lamp examination is more likely to be positive in most cases, not just 50% like what we're taught in school, but most cases of microsporum canis. So fluorescing hairs are more likely to be found in untreated infections, so if they have been treated, it can be more difficult to find. Um, but you can get false positive and false negative results um, if we're not using the right equipment or not using magnification to actually look at that individual hair shaft, um, if the patient's moving around a lot, if we're not really using proper technique or have not the right training to know how to read that. But it actually can be a more useful tool um, in a clinical setting and very cost effective to use Wood's Lamp and we're probably able to catch more of those cases than we originally thought. You can also monitor response to therapy by using um, the wood lamp if you have documented that it was fluorescing before, clinical response, and then again culture. And besides having a positive or negative culture, you can also ask for the number of colony forming units because if you have a high number of colony forming units, a month later you still have a positive culture but there's a lot less colony forming units, that might be a good indicator um, for us as well. Going on to treatments, um, it is mentioned that twice weekly application of either lime sulfur, enalconazole, which is not something that we have available in the U.S. at this time, but other countries have it, or a combination myconazole chlorhexidine shampoo, which you'd really want 2% myconazole, 2% chlorhexidine, um, are recommended topical therapies that can be helpful with the treatment of generalized dermatophytosis. Um, so that's something to consider. In general, just using a chlorhexidine-based product doesn't seem to be as effective and is not recommended by this particular um, guideline. Um, and then going into systemic treatment, itraconazole and terbinafine seem to be the most effective and safe treatments for dermatophytosis. Um, with itraconazole, it's really important that we're using the non-compounded itraconazole because compounded itraconazole has been shown in other studies to have a lot of variation um, in how um, what concentration it's in. So we really want to stick to the products that are not compounded to have good efficacy. Um, ketoconazole and fluconazole have been shown to be less effective treatment options. Um, you still can get some 
response to them, but in general, itraconazole and terbinafine are going to be the more common systemic treatments that are recommended based on this clinical guideline. And then for environmental disinfection, environmental contamination's primary purpose is to prevent the fomite contamination um, and false positive fungal culture results. But realize infection from the environment by itself is actually pretty rare. So using really good um, hygiene, using really good you know, cleanliness, washing the bedding really well, you know, maybe cleaning with the dilute bleach mixture. If there's an area the pet's really on, washing clothes, minimizing contact can be helpful. But most cases, if we're just talking about a a household pet and not a situation where there may be lots of infected animals, like a shelter situation, um, we don't have to get too worried about being completely crazy about our environmental contamination, but definitely good to take normal hygiene, good cautious uh, protocols. Um, what I loved about this paper is it mentioned confinement, like isolating these pets needs to be used with care and for the shortest term, shortest time possible. Dermatophytosis is a curable disease, but we know if we're just isolating, say a young kitten for several months upon end, um, they're not getting socialized property. And then that can really be considered a long-term effect on their quality of life. So we do want to make sure we're really thinking about the whole pet when we're treating them in this situation, um, and how to handle that. And then for zoonotic considerations, we know dermatophytosis is a known zoonosis. It can cause skin lesions, which are treatable and curable. It's a common skin disease in people, but the really truly rate of transmission from animals to people is unknown. It doesn't seem to happen a ton unless that animal has been infected for a long time or the owner um, themselves are immunocompromised humans have their own form of dermatophytosis that tend to affect them more than what we'd see from pets going to humans. So, and actually the, in humans, the predominant dermatophyte pathogen is not animal derived and is um, T. rubrum. And we see that a lot with what um, people report as like toenail fungus. So it's not actually something they're getting from their pets. But we do know the most common complication of microsporum canis, which most commonly comes from cats, is in immunocompromised people if they have prolonged treatment time. So I just want to go over a summary of this clinical consensus. I will put it in the show notes so that you can click the link um, and get to the particular paper. It's a longer paper, but it's really good information. Just taking all of this data, all of these studies we have for several, several years and putting it into one area to make these conclusions just so we can continue to help pets and stay up to date with the literature.